I've got a, a bit of a, I'm going to start with a quiz today, so thankfully the, uh, the thing's up. So I'm going to, some, some people may be very well travelled, and I'm going to ask you where the particular towers uh, come from in the world. So does anyone know where that one is? In Malaysia, okay, that's Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur. How about this one? Eiffel Tower, Paris. This one? A bit harder? It's a Jin Mao building in Shanghai. This one here? That's, <laughs> that's the Shard in London. Uh, how about this one? That's actually the tallest one in the world. Burj Khalifa in uh, Dubai, yeah. So, UAE. And here's one in Canada, which is very interesting. That's actually a real building. I thought it was like a uh, artist's impression, but it's actually real. That's called the Absolute World Towers in Toronto, Canada. Pretty impressive. <coughs> and the next slide shows us how towers have developed going this way, <coughs> starting with the Great Pyramid, 2,500 BC, all the way now to the Burj Khalifa, which is like 800 and something metres. You notice something as you go along. <coughs> Each tower just gets that little bit higher than the last. The race is on. In fact, now there's a guy in India planning for a tower which is 1.2 kilometres high. That's the next big thing on the horizon for towers. What are these towers for? Well, you know, down the bottom, usually you've got some retail. Uh, you've got some offices or, you know, things that they do business-wise in the middle. You get towards the top, you have viewing platforms. Right at the top, often you have communications. So, you know, you can extend mobile phones a long way from here. And maybe the other pu purpose in all these is maybe pride, hey? I want to build a tower just that little bit taller so my name and my country and my reputation is just a bit bigger than the next guy's. So you can see in 20th century tower building, between the first one and the second one, not much difference. Between the Great Pyramid and the first one in the 20th century, and in the 20th century it's kind of just escalating to get bigger and bigger. My tower is just a little bit higher than yours. Okay, over the last few weeks, Aaron's been leading us in a study through Genesis. And we've looked at the creation story, and this represents that creation story. You have chaos on the outside, and in the center is this place of order, where uh, the, the Garden of Eden, a safe space where God would meet with people. Wonderful place. And the people were meant to look after this garden, and ultimately they would bring other people into this presence of God and, and this relationship with God would go throughout the earth and throughout humanity. But it didn't turn out well. The snake turned up and uh, deceived the people. Something happened in the garden. They ate from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil and when they did, they were then cast outside the garden, out into the chaos from the order into the chaos, from the protection into the risk, uh, no longer able to eat from the tree of life. They were cut off from the presence of God and they couldn't have every day that which sustained them, relationship with God. And they had to face living in a chaotic world without God's protection, without God's protective presence directly with them. From that time onward, human life would be one of struggle in the chaos difficulties. Now after the fall, humans 
obeyed God in at least one area, reproduction. That was the area they obeyed God. They were good at that and they kept multiplying. But out in the chaotic world, uh, the, the world became filled with violence. People started to mistreat one another. God looked at that world and he became sorry that he'd made that world. So God came up with a plan. He was going to put an end to this, an end to the system. Bring an end to the violence, bring judgment on the world. Put an end to these people. But he had a plan to rescue Noah and his family. There would be someone survived through the judgment. And out of the, out of the flood, uh, the ark is rescued. Uh, they come out and then they reestablish their lives. And again, they begin to do the, good, the thing they're good at multiplying again uh, that's kind of the one thing through the bible that we did obey god on right multiplication we've done well at after all these stories people are spreading out they come to the table of nations this is chapter 10 uh, so in the table of nations we start at the start of the chapter this is the account of shem ham and japheth noah's sons who themselves had sons after the flood you get a whole chapter of names and genealogies of families going out over the earth at the end of the chapter, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these nations spread out over, uh, from these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So you have this spreading out, this multiplication of humanity uh, and the origin of what we call nations. Cultures develop, separating peoples out after the flood They go to different places, they develop different cultures, different practices, different beliefs. There's a diversity going out over the earth. And pretty much that diversity is a good thing. It's a good thing that people are becoming diverse. This is good. The nations are good. Things go well for a while. Often happens in the Bible. God establishes something. Things go well for a time. And then something comes up. Chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may, be able, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. That doesn't sound too unreasonable, does it? You've got a big piece of land. Now, probably the location is modern-day Iraq, uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. You've got a lot of uh, good land there, good place to settle down, grow some crops. Uh, And the people are ready to do some hard work, to bake some bricks, make a city. Uh, Not dissimilar to the attitude that most of us would have. Let's settle down. Let's build a city. Let's get things ordered. Let's sort things out. Build a safe home for our families. Enjoy the land and not have to be scattered. By and large, cities are good things. The Bible ends in a city. It's not a bad thing to have a city. But there is something wrong. It's not quite clear at this stage of the story what it is that's wrong. But we know that when God eventually comes and has a look at what's happening, he's not going to approve of it. So what is it that's amiss? Right in the middle of this city is a tower. This tower, it's said to reach to heaven. Why would you build a tower that reaches to heaven? 
Let's go to the next slide. Now this, on the bottom there, that's the ruins of what they believe was a massive ziggurat. It's about uh, 90 kilometers south of Baghdad, still in existence today. It doesn't operate, but it's the ruins of a massive ziggurat. And throughout the area, there are these ruins in, in, around that area. Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. It's a floodplain, great for building bricks. You just dry them in the sun or you bake them. And what develops uh, around this time is this thing called a ziggurat, which is the top one. That's, that's what it looks like when it's uh, kind of finished. Not quite as tall as the modern towers that we have, but it is said to reach up to heaven. Far higher than any of the other buildings at the time. The cities were mainly uh, low. And then you have this massive building. It's, t- it's big, it's tall. The standard ziggurat. It has a stairway that goes up to heaven. I know, don't go to the Led Zeppelin thing. But it has a stairway to heaven. Every, every ziggurat has a stairway that goes uh, up the side. So, you know, that stairway goes up and it goes up there and it reaches the top. And the top, this thing is actually called Babel. Literally, the root of that word is the gate of God. The idea was that God or the gods lived in heaven. And if you built the right structure, if you built a ziggurat, in this case, in this culture, then the gods would come down, they would visit. And at the top of the ziggurat is a room. In that room, there's a bed made. And there was also a table laid with food. So if you do the right structure, the gods come down, they, they have a nap, uh, they rest, they eat, and then they come down the stairs. So they come down the stairway, and at the bottom of this structure is the temple complex. This is the place where people come and give their offerings. This is the place where they worship. They do their rituals. So that when go- the god or the gods come down, they receive the offering. And the people get blessed. That's what the ziggurat is all about. That's why it has a stairway. It's not for the people to get up. It's for God to come down. And that's why they gather at the bottom. It's all about a system of worship. It's all about gaining God's favor. That's what the tower is for. So we, when, when we read these verses, let's go to the next verses. Uh, or the I'll go to these verses, verse 4. So let's go back to the picture. They said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heaven, or when it reaches to heaven. What we're hearing when we read those verses is the desire to set up a system of worship. We're going to build a tower. It's going to reach to heaven where the gods live. When God sees the temple that we've built, He will surely come down. He will eat and drink. He'll have a nap. And he'll come down the stairs and he'll receive our offerings and we'll be blessed. That's the idea. Sounds good? Kind of what religion is all about. These people were not people who didn't think about God. Uh, They wanted God's blessing. They were prepared to work hard. They were prepared to build this massive tower in order to reach God. They are religious people. But, you know, as you read through the Bible, there's a disturbing theme comes out about offerings. For example, this is in Malachi chapter 1. I think I've got Malachi chapter 1. Go to the next one. Go back. I haven't. I'll read it. It says this. 
God says this, Oh, that you would shut the doors of the temple so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will accept no offering from your hands. The Israelites also tried to get worship right. They had a whole set of instructions, even given by God. But God doesn't always accept the offerings that are given. He's not interested in every offering that's brought to him. Israel did all the things the right way. They had the right technology of worship. But God said, don't light those fires, they're useless. I'm not interested, I'm not pleased with the sacrifices. Interesting, go back to the stories we read about. There were two brothers, Cain and Abel. They both brought an offering to God and one of them, God was not pleased with and the other he was. God does not all accept all offerings equally. So these guys building the tower in Babel, they're trying to get the technology of worship right. They're trying really hard. They're putting resources into it. According to the standards of the time, they are doing everything right. Surely God would bless them. Let's see how God responds. So, verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. It's a common theme in the Bible. God sets up situations. He did it in the garden. He set up a situation and then he steps away. He allows people freedom to do their own thing. Even in the garden, when it talks about God walking with them in the cool of the day, You notice that God is not there the whole time watching over their shoulder. He creates a situation and then he steps back and he allows people the freedom to do what they do. That's good management practice, isn't it? You you kind of set up the situation for your employees. You don't stay over their shoulders. You allow them the freedom. God's like that. He's not a control freak who doesn't give people freedom. But one thing he always does, he he comes back to check on what's been happening as he's been away. So here, God comes down to see the city. He's not absent. He's coming down to check out what's happening and to see the tower. And that's what people wanted. They wanted God to come down. God was in heaven. That's what the whole thing was about, that God would come down to them, accept their worship and offerings. But God is not coming down the way they thought he would. He's not approving of their worship in the way that they expected. He's not dutifully gliding down the stairs to accept their offerings. He's coming to examine what they're up to. That's something they'd forgotten about God. You see in the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, this God is a God who does set up situations. He wants people to prosper and have a go at things, steps back and allows them to do that. And then after a time, he comes to examine what's going on. What has been done while he's been away? And that deal is consistent in all those stories. God sets it up, he steps back, allows the humans to do their thing, and then steps back in again and asks the question, what have you been up to? This is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. Paul brings this up in uh, 2 Corinthians. Let's go to the next slide. Next one? Next one. (laughs) This one. (laughs) 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This idea that God asks for an accounting, it's all through the Scriptures, all through. When God eventually does come down and examine what's happening, He doesn't come by the systems that people have set up for Him to come down. He doesn't play by our rules, he comes in his time and in his way. And the people of this time had lost sight of that. They'd imagined that, what was it like, what was it mean to be a human being on earth? Uh, it meant uh, you would be able to be free, yes. You could build your city. You would sort out the things of this life. These people hadn't forgotten about God completely. But they'd done it their way. They'd built their city, they'd raised their tower, they'd defined who God was. God would work this way. Uh, and when he would respond to them this way, this, God would work on the system that they had developed and he'd pretty much fit into their lives. They had used their freedom, uh, really not to seek what God was wanting, uh, just to do stuff they wanted out of their anxiety because we didn't want to be scattered. So they built the system Really, instead of glorifying God, they sought to domesticate God. Let's put God in this system. That's where he fits and let's keep him there. They, they redefined God away from a God who is concerned about everything on planet Earth and every aspect of life to a God who is kind of fitting in this system and you can actually manipulate that God provided you get your offerings right. You can do whatever you want with the rest of your life. So when God does come down and bring an account, he's not pleased with this, despite their efforts at being religious. Just as it was with Cain, God is not pleased with their offerings. He sees that they're banded together in unity. They've come up with their plan to manage God, to put God in the space he belongs, and they would control the earth. But God doesn't accept that, and he brings them to account. In order to put them in their place, what we find, he rest to restrict their pride and arrogance, he confuses their language. So he stops them being able to band together and, and do these great things. They may still be rebellious, but they won't be able to band together and go over the whole of the earth. They'll have to work hard to understand one another. That will slow down their progress in this, uh, this effort to actually control the earth. Let's put God in his place. We find that God does not accept every offering. We find that he does come and bring an account. And human beings suffer because of our choices. All of these things are in these stories. So, where are we in verse 8? I'm not sure whether we go back or... Verse 8, there we go. So, the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So from this point onwards in history, people are to be scattered. The diversity of cultures was already beginning. That's a good thing. Uh, families were spreading out, doing different things, having specializations of culture and language. That's great. Uh, and this diversity, I think, was always God's intention. But from this point on, not only would they be diverse, they would also be divided. 
And if we look around the world today, this story pretty much explains the nations. You think about the nations of the world and the relationships that exist, this story fully explains why things are as they are. So I've got a slide here that talks about in the 1990s. This is it. So one study, they studied the nations in the 20th century. One study identified over 50 armed civil conflicts ongoing in the decade. I think it was the 1990s. Only two international armed conflicts, so world wars. While classifications of these conflicts vary, about half of the civil wars and other internal armed conflicts were to a large extent ethnic conflicts. Ethnic conflict has long been one of the major sources of insecurity in the world and it is becoming more so. The nations are striving with each other. And it may not be true for us at the moment, but throughout history and actually throughout the world, it's very common based on ethnicity. The rebellion against God results in struggle and difficulty. The conflicts of the nations are tragic between peoples. God never intended it to be like that. God knows that human potential is incredible, but left unchecked, we will destroy ourselves and we will destroy the world. God does not allow empires to rule forever. He brings them down one by one. This scattering of humanity, the confusion of the languages, is seen in the story as an act of God. God does this. There is a natural process of diversification that God intended, but God interrupts it because he sets up an environment for human beings to prosper. He steps back and, how are these guys going to handle the freedom that they have? Each time we're given freedom in the, in the garden, Cain and Abel in the flood and now here where God is seen to be away somewhere maybe in heaven while not directly present people get up to all sorts of things we forget about the gifts and the benefits and the, the, the fellowship we can have with God and we set up another system whereby we can control God if God left us to our own devices uh, our unity in rebellion would be so great, we would define God out of existence and end up destroying ourselves and destroying the earth. What we see in these stories, and I suggest it, the scripture is consistent in this throughout, is a view that God is sovereign. God sets up reality. He delegates authority. He allows human beings to take the reins, at least partially. But he does bring accountability eventually he brings to account for what has happened or what is happening. In these stories, and I think in the Bible generally, there is a pessimistic view of human nature. There's not the sense that even though we're created in, we're created in the image of God, but we don't have the capacity to be like God. We don't have the moral capacity to be like God without God helping us to do that. The cycle of the judges in the Old Testament uh, the whole cycle of the kings in the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament, by the, when Jesus comes, by the time you get to the end of the New Testament, the letters are all about how do we restore the, the stuff that's been broken? How do we bring back people to the true worship that we had in the start? We tend towards independence. We tend towards violence, immorality. We want to set up towers and build worship stuff put God in a box, redefine God as the one who does our bidding our way. 
He won't disrupt our system, will he? For we are the ones at the end of the day who determine good from evil. Wasn't that the original temptation? But some will say, these are only ancient stories. They don't have much relevance for us today. That's just for them. You know, when I see these stories, I don't think much has changed in that time. The fall has occurred and that fall has run through each of our hearts and through all of our cultures. I'm looking at recent events. The the fall cuts through. The Tower, the Cain and Abel story, it's all relevant for our time. These stories are formational stories. They kind of tell us how life works. I hear a story and, and, you know, thousands of random breath tests have been falsified by police in this country. Isn't that human nature, just as it was back then? I hear that slavery in the world is on the rise. Has anything changed? Uh, I hear of people seeking asylum in a country and they're imprisoned and the children are separated from them. Isn't that human nature controlling again? And most shocking of all, the Australian cricket team is ball tampering. Isn't that human nature at work? I put that in the spell checker and it didn't even allow it. It said ball tempering. (laughs) Couldn't even comprehend that they could ball tamper. But doesn't Babel help us to see this stuff? Why this is the case? Left to ourselves, we will build cities, we will build towers, we will define God by our own terms, we will create a system by which God is okay over there but doesn't mess with the rest of our lives. We can't let him break out of the system and the box we have him in. Because we don't trust him. We don't trust that the God of the garden would actually want to bring that relationship to us today. So we've got to put him over there somewhere and and sort him out so he, he stays where he belongs. The tower the tower story, I think consistent with the other stories, we have freedom. But God limits that freedom. Eventually, he brings us to account. We're going to go to to Mars, apparently. There's there's plans to go to Mars. We have great potential. We will try and control things, though. And we will forget about the God of the garden and build the God of the tower or the system of worship there. We weren't created to be independent. Human beings aren't made to be independent of God. We're not meant to exist apart from God. We were meant to eat of the tree of life consistently. But we were cut off from that because we wanted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We wanted to work it out for ourselves. There's an amazing city that's built, an amazing tower, a well thought through and elaborate system of worship. God is in heaven, the tower reaches up to heaven. We'll set it up, God will meet our needs. He'll come down the stairs and he'll bless us. Let's read the story again. Uh, go back to the original story. I've underlined some things. Uh, flip the other way. Through, through towards the second last one, I think. Let's have a look at... And the question I want to ask as we read the first part of the story. Who's doing the acting? Who is, initi- who is the initiators in this story? And the second question, where is God in the first part of the story? Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech... As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. 
They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may not so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So who's doing the acting in this part of the story? It's the people. Where's God? He's kind of not in the picture in that part of the story. This is human life, struggling in the chaos, trying to work it out. The drive is to build a city and to make a tower, to make a name for ourselves, to get ourselves established because we can't rely on anyone else for that. We can't draw on God for that sort of stuff, can we? We're afraid of being scattered. There's anxiety in our humanity. There's chaos out there. And if we do all this right, we can manage the chaos and we'll be okay. Let's go to the second half of the story. Who's acting? Where is God? But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not, so they'll not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. God appears back on the picture in the second half of the story. He had allowed them to do their own thing, but now brings them to account. God doesn't take away their creativity. God, the gifts and calling of God, he doesn't take them back. He doesn't change that. But he brings a restriction upon them in the form of confusing their language to um, stop them banding together in rebellion. Babel, which at the start of the story, uh, and the root meaning is gate of God, now has come to mean confusion. So God scatters them, they are forced further out into the chaos, the chaos that they, were, they feared. Now it might seem harsh, this story, but only if you believe that our freedom as human beings doesn't include God bringing us to account. And we must remember too, this is not the end of the story, this is only a part of the story. Not much later, in fact in chapter 12, God is going to come down again and he's going to choose a person called Abraham and his wife Sarah and through them he's going to create a nation and that nation is going to, the plan of that nation is that God would reveal himself through that nation to the other nations. But as with the other stories, they they reproduce well, they do that well, um, but that nation fails It doesn't do what God called it to do. It kind of, again, sets its own worship system. Even with what God has given it, it turns its worship away from God. We reproduce well and eventually one of the descendants from that nation, called Jesus, is born. This one, instead of listening to the serpent, says no to Satan and surrenders to God. Instead of striking his brother, gives himself over to suffer for the sake of others. Instead of bringing violence on the earth, he's called the Prince of Peace. Instead of building a tower to heaven so that God would come down, uh, we read in John 1.51, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God 
ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on Jesus. He becomes the, the ladder, the stairway between heaven and earth. If you like, Jesus becomes God's ziggurat. He becomes the way in which God would come to humanity. He becomes the second Adam, creates a new humanity, so that those who follow him don't have to be afraid of the chaos. They don't have to be afraid of the difficulty of working the ground. Because in seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, all of those things are taken care of by God himself. And the fellowship, that relationship that was there in the garden, is restored to them. Humanity and God can be reconnected through Jesus. The one who says, come unto me, all who are heavy laden, all those who are struggling to build a city, struggling with the chaos of this world, who who are anxious about being scattered, who have been waiting at the bottom of some sort of tower that maybe someday God would come down and show up and bless. To all those people, Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. I will restore you to the garden. I will restore the presence of God to your life. I'll bring you close connection. We can have harmony together in creation. Now, not fully, of course, yet, but you can know it now. One day, all of this will be fully realized because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Lord, the story of humanity... As we, as we see it in the Bible, the, the loss of that fellowship, that loss of that protective place and the drivenness out into the chaos that we experience in this world, the, the, the difficulty of making a living, the struggle with raising families, we know what that is, Lord. And probably we too, we see towers being built even in our day that will predict and define how you will operate. But I thank you in Jesus we have another way. We have somebody who has come from heaven. We have the Son of God who has given himself for us that we might have restoration to God. Thank you, Lord, we don't have to be afraid of being scattered. We don't have to manage the chaos because we can have your presence. Thank you that Jesus has become God's ziggurat. He has become the ladder between heaven and earth. We don't have to be afraid. And our labors don't have to end in frustration. You have surely come to us in your son, Jesus. May we know the rest and the peace and the security that comes by knowing him. Help us, Lord, when we're tempted to make a name for ourselves, to define you by some system, to look to your son who gave up himself for us. Lord, help us each day to turn to you, not to restrict you or to define you, but to receive you. In Jesus' name.